have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. We have just two weeks left in the book of Jonah today and then the week after the Abide Summit. While you're turning there, in case you weren't in here, I really hope next Sunday you'll plan to be with us. It's going to be a powerful time. We don't need more to do, do we? We need somebody to pour into us, to fuel us, to invest in us. Next week, there is nothing to do. We're even hiring professional child care so that everyone can gather in here today, uh, next Sunday, and just be fed the word of God. Just contemplate the glory of Christ. Jonah chapter 3, we'll read the whole chapter together. It's just 10 verses. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it in the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and removed his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that you would stir us up with your word. I pray that, Lord, just like the king of Nineveh all those years ago, that, Father, the word of God would reach to us and in us and work through us. That, God, you would bring us to repentance and confession and brokenness where it is needed. And that, Father, you would set in our bones a passion for your glory and for your kingdom that is reflective of your own passion. Father, don't let us leave here today the same way we came in. Let us leave here today, Lord, more devout in our commitment to you, more in love with who you are and what you've called us to be, and God, in greater reflection of the image that you have placed in each of us. We ask these things now in the glory of Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We've talked about this a little bit before, but with the pandemic, the professional landscape has changed forever. That what you had is during the pandemic, nobody knew how long it was going to go. Certainly nobody thought it was going to last as long as it did last. And then when you kind of realized there's no turning back, no one really knew when it was going to be over. And so you had situations where companies and churches and schools and basically any profession that you could name, no one knew if they were still going to be standing once this thing was over. And so it became an all-hands-on-deck situation for uh, employees that they would all join in together. And they were working longer hours, and they were working harder, and, and, and kicking the bushes, and, and doing all the things that they could think to do to make sure that the company stayed afloat. 
Well, of course, once that came, once we came out of that, many of the people, it led to the Great Recession. We talked about that uh, several weeks ago when we were in 1 Kings chapter 19. It led to this, uh, this, this great resignation so that people would step away, just burned out and not able. And, and the workforce has not recovered. And so these people, that, who their reflex is to work harder and to do more, they had even more to do. And they had even fewer people to spread it out among them. And then, of course, you factor in the fact that we have record-breaking inflation right now. And things are more expensive than they've ever been. And at the same time, though people have worked harder and though people have sacrificed more and though the workforce is is smaller than it's ever been, wages are not rising in proportion. And so for many people, the response and the newest trend has become something called quiet quitting. Quiet quitting. That I'm going to show up to my job and I'm going to do the bare minimum on the job description and I'm going to do what I have to do to be able to make sure that I keep my job. But I will not do a step more than that. I am done with long hours. I am done with sacrificing for my team. I am done sacrificing for my employer. I'm going to come. I'm going to check in. I'm going to check out. And I'm going to leave it all at work. Have you ever wondered, what if God took our attitude as his own? What if he became a quiet quitter? What if God became content just to do just enough to make sure that the universe stays in orbit, just enough to make sure that everything stays in order, but not not a penny more than what he has to do, not a penny more than what is required of him, that there would be no intervention of of his own good mercy into our own wretched behavior. Boy, if God was as determined as we are, we would be in a lot of trouble, wouldn't we? But perhaps if we were to take Jonah chapter 3 and we were to summarize it into a single theme, the theme, the main idea of Jonah chapter 3 is that God doesn't quit. That God is determined to carry out his will and God is determined to spread his glory and God is determined to accomplish his will in spite of our own lack of enthusiasm. And in fact, I think what we see this morning are three different glimpses or three different results of the determination of God in Jonah chapter 3 that I think this morning will challenge, convict, encourage, and I pray, I pray sincerely, set our hearts on fire. I have found myself this week emotional and even moved at some points to tears just reading and thinking through some of the ramifications of Jonah chapter 3. And I have prayed that it would have a similar effect among our congregation this morning. The first result that I want us to see is that God keeps sending. God keeps sending. Perhaps if there was a mantra of the quiet quitters, it would be, why keep going? Why keep going? Why keep doing what I don't have to do? Why keep going above and beyond the call of duty? Why keep on doing it? Well, we're far enough now into the big story where we ought to be able to recognize that though this is the mantra of the quiet quitters, it ought to be the mantra of God. That the people of God have received nothing but grace and mercy, expansive glory, provision, protection, miraculous intervention. And yet God's passion remains steady and the people, they often, we often wane, don't we? And so God ought to be the one who says, why keep going? Why do I keep loving these people? Why do I keep intervening on their behalf? Why do I keep showing them mercy? Why do I keep providing for them? But what we see again in Jonah chapter 3, just the latest iteration, just the latest time in which it's emphasized, what we see is that God is more determined to love his people than his people are to live for him. 
that God is more determined to love his people than his people are determined to live for him. And we can see that because God keeps sending the reluctant. God keeps sending the reluctant. Probably the words of greatest grace in all of Jonah chapter 3 happened there in verse 1 when it says the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. A second time. Now, as we read the Bible, we need to be clear about something. That God does not always give a second chance. This is apparent. We, remember when Uzzah reached out and touched the ark of the covenant of the Lord and he was incinerated there on the spot? It's not always the case that God gives a second chance. But it is within the character that more often than not, he does give a second chance. That there are far more instances in the scriptures, we can think of David, we can think of Solomon, we can think of Rehoboam, we, we, we can think of, uh, we, we, can, we can keep going, right? Moses. That more often than not, it is in, within the character of God with his children to give them a second opportunity to be able to do that which he called and commanded them to do from the start. And it's amazing that when it comes, the word of the Lord, it says there in verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And I want you to realize that this is the first time that we've heard from God since Jonah chapter 1. When the original command came to Jonah, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, says arise, go to Nineveh, go right now, go yesterday, hurry urgently, like you need to go to Nineveh. That's the last time that we heard God speak. Now a lot has transpired since then, hasn't it? A lot has transpired since God originally came to Jonah. Jonah went on the run to Tarshish. God sends a great storm among the sea. The judgment of God comes. The billows roll over his face as he's thrown overboard. And the, and the tentacles and the barnacles of the sea begin to wrap around his head. And he's fainting away. And he remembers the Lord. And then he's swallowed up by the fish. And now here he is standing on the beach dripping in whale vomit. And the word of the Lord speaks again. And what does God say to Jonah? He says the exact same thing. The exact same thing. In fact, I would encourage you, when you go home, go read chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. I wanted to have it up there. There just wasn't enough space. Chapter 1, one verse 1 through 3, and then chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. And it's, it's like the author had no creativity. He just copied and pasted what was there in chapter 1 here in chapter 2. Because the call and the command of God was not changed by the reluctance or the circumstances of Jonah. In fact, the will of God was not even changed by the disobedience of Jonah. Why? Because God is determined, isn't he? God is determined that he's going to send his people. And he's going to send his people that they might proclaim his glory. God is determined that his mercy is going to be known. And that his people are going to be a blessing to all nations. God is determined for it. And so we shouldn't presume that we're going to get a second chance. You shouldn't live at 15, 16, 17, 23, 24, 25, 35, 36, 55, 56. As though a second chance is a certainty. Brothers and sisters, when a second chance comes, you ought to seize it with both hands. When the opportunity presents itself for you to follow the Lord, where you once had disobeyed the Lord, for you to commit to the Lord, where you had once wavered in your faith, then that is an offering of great grace for you because it is an evidence of the determination of the mercy of God to work and move through you in your life. You see, there's a reason that he, was sending this, he keeps sending these reluctant prophets. He keeps sending these reluctant prophets and these reluctant preachers because he keeps going to the wretched. If there has ever been a people on earth that the word wretched was a good description of, it was the Assyrians. It was the Ninevites. They were a truly wretched people. They would go and they would not just go and conquer people, they would destroy them. 
They would ensure that it was a civilization that would have a difficult time ever rising again. They would massacre the men and rape the women and the children. They would enslave them. They would take those that they had conquered and they would cut the noses off of their faces so that they had to live with the humiliation of defeat, the scar, and the pain. These were truly wretched people. So isn't it amazing to stop for just a second and recognize that God was determined to get to them? That God was determined that they hear a message from him. That God was determined that they hear a word from him to them. That he should have let them just find their own end. He should have let justice and judgment just fall upon them. But God is determined to go to the Ninevites. In fact, if you see there, it says here in verse 3 that Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. And that is the only change from verses 1 through 3, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, is verse 3. In chapter 3, Jonah arises and he flees to Tarshish, but here he arises and he goes to Nineveh according to the the word of the Lord. But God goes to the wretched through this prophet and he goes and he sends it in his mercy in at least two dimensions that we ought to see. First, he sends them a man of mercy. He sends them a man of mercy. Remember we talked last week, about, or two weeks ago, about how one of the distinctions, one of the unique characteristics of Jonah's ministry is unlike the other prophets, he had to go and he had to stand nose to nose with the Ninevites. He had to go and be minister to them eyeball to eyeball, mano y mano. Why is that? God is having Jonah incarnate, I'll use that word specifically, incarnate the word of the Lord to them. That is, that Jonah is literally putting flesh and bones on the command and prophecy of God in ways that I think by the end of the sermon you're going to see even more vividly. So that they had to look, God, not just at words on a page, but look eyeball to eyeball, man to man, into exactly what God was saying. It was a mission of mercy through the incarnation of the word of God. But it was a message of mercy too. Robin sent me an email this week, and I, and I, uh, and I love to be able to talk about these things with her. And she, said, she pointed out that, that in there in chapter 4, you see the uh, message of Jonah. And it's such a brief message, but you have to understand that he wouldn't have spoken naturally, certainly as his first language, the, mess, the language of the Assyrians. He spoke Hebrew, right? And so he's coming in with limited knowledge. And so he has, in Hebrew, it's five words in his sermon. But they are a loaded five words. It seems so simple, and it is simple, but they are a loaded five words. First of all, he says that there are going to be 40 days. Now let me ask you, why, if God was intent on destroying the city, why would he give them 40 days to contemplate it? Why would he give them 40 days to consider it? The 40 days is an offering of mercy because it's time to repent. In fact, this morning, if you don't know the Lord, you've never committed to him, I don't know how much longer that you have, but I know that you have the breath that is in your lungs today that the Lord has sustained you this far so that you can be this morning, so that there is time for you to respond to the message of the gospel, to repent, and to place your faith in Christ. But not only that, the word overthrown, this gets back to that passage I read earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 5, that strange way of starting the service. So overthrown is a word that can have a dual meaning in the Hebrew. So if you go back to Genesis chapter 19, you see the word overthrown there in regards to the city of of, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. That God is going to overthrow Sodom. That the judgment of God through the sulfur and the fire is going to come against them through his wrath and through his judgment. And they're going to know him because of the great evil of that great city. 
And he's going to overthrow the city. And that certainly is the threat. That is the warning that is coming through Jonah to the Ninevites. That like Sodom, he can overthrow and topple the great city. Regardless of what their military prowess is. Regardless of what their wealth is. That the Lord can come and he can overthrow the mightiest of the mighty cities. Because he is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. But that same word, that same Hebrew word is translated in Deuteronomy chapter 23 verse 5 as the overthrowing of our hearts. As the turning over of our hearts by the love of God. That in other words, that through the warning of God and through the word of God, that what God can do is by his mercy not overthrow you with his judgment, but overthrow and topple that heart of yours that is so resistant to him. That he can change your heart so that now you're repentant. So now that you love him when before you were indifferent to him. So that now you're committed to him when before you were lukewarm to him. So that now, now you hate what was once evil that you loved. And now you love the good which you once you once resented. And that's for us, isn't it? That's for us. That we, like Jonah, are to have a ministry of mercy that is incarnational. Why? Because that brings us to the thought of Jesus. The ministry of Jesus was incarnational, wasn't it? You remember what John says about him and the way he opens up his gospel? He says that he is the word of God that who became flesh. That Jesus is literally the flesh and bones of the promises of God. Now, living among his generation, looking them eyeball to eyeball, nose to nose, mano y mano, that they might hear from him a good news message of mercy. Of course, how was he received? He was the word of God became flesh. Paul, I love the way he says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, that in Jesus Christ incarnate, all of, our, all of the promises find their yeses in him. He is the word living and breathing. But his generation didn't receive him, did they? Though he had come to save them, they rejected the ministry of Jesus. They rejected the incarnation of Jesus. And our ministries, our ministries are to take the shape of Jonah. They are to take the shape of Jesus in which we take the promises of God's word. The good news of the kingdom ethics. The the willingness to turn a cheek. The willingness to, to lay down our lives and to love a generation that loathes and resents us. That we are to incarnate the promises of God. We are to incarnate and put flesh and bones on what God has commanded and demanded of all people that they would turn and face toward him and facing toward him find their ultimate fulfillment in him. And so there's a challenge that are we living among our generation as those who are the incarnate word of God in the image and the way of Jonah and then certainly of Jesus. That that's how we're going to reach an increasingly secular generation that is hostile toward us. That's no secret, is it? It's no secret. Your children are going to face greater hostility for their faith than you faced. And you face greater hostility for your faith than your parents faced. That's just the reality. There are going to be greater temptations. Turn on TikTok. Turn, turn on social media. Think about the access that comes to the devices that they carry in their pockets everywhere. There, there is more opportunity to flee from God and to rebel against God and to loathe God. And there is greater hostility to their faith in God. What hope is there? What hope is there? The hope is that the church wouldn't resent the world for it. The hope is that the church wouldn't hate the world for it. That the, the hope is that the church wouldn't return fire with fire, but like Christ would incarnate the word of God and take love where there is hatred, take passion where there is apathy, take, take devotion where there is indifference. That the way we're going to reach this generation is by laying down our lives in the way of Jesus, to go like Jonah to Nineveh. But a ministry in the way of Jesus is a difficult ministry, isn't it? 
quiet quitting is much easier. Coming to church, singing a couple of songs, going to Cracker Apparel, and then going to watch football, that's a lot easier than going to minister in the midst of a generation that may resent you for it. But God keeps sending because God keeps stirring. God keeps sending because God keeps stirring. The reason that people quiet quit is really there's a lack of passion. Wherever there is passion for something or someone, there is an indomitable, an indomitable uh, resolve to carry forward. It doesn't matter what I'm getting paid. This is my passion. It doesn't matter what my job description says. This is my passion. It doesn't matter. The mission and the passion that I have in my life will not let me just sleep in. The mission and the passion I have for my life will not let me just throw up my hands and be indifferent toward it. But what do we see in Jonah? Jonah's quiet quitting, isn't he? The word of the Lord comes to Jonah, and Jonah doesn't throw a parade. He doesn't send out a company-wide email. He doesn't uh, give a great pronouncement of what he's doing. He, instead of going to Nineveh, just arises and gets on the boat to Tarshish. It's really a very very non-theatrical response that Jonah has in disobedience. And so what we see in Jonah is that Jonah is like us, that we're quick to cool off in our passion for the Lord. That we're quick to have, have our passion wane. And when our passion wanes, we're, we're easier to just go through the motions and to do the bare minimum of our faith. To, to do just enough so that our kids can say one day that they were raised in a Christian household. To do just enough to say, hopefully, hopefully, I'm, I'm okay with the Lord. But the truth is, is that we're quiet quitting. This has always been the case for the people of God. But you know what God does? Because God is determined that his people love him. Because God is determined that his people be passionate for his glory in the way that he is passionate for his glory, God keeps raising up pastors and God keeps raising up prophets and God keeps raising up the word of God and people incarnate that he might stir in us through his spirit and awaken us to to his glory. That he might stir up our passions that we might once again re-engage with the mission that that he has for us. You, you may be here this morning, and you might say that compared to where I was five years ago, I'd have to say I've quietly quit. Maybe it wasn't even intentional, but that's where I am. Today, I just go through the motions. I go to church, I go to lunch, I watch football, I go home, I live about, go about my life. Look at the Ninevites this morning. Look at the Ninevites. That, that the Ninevites give to us how we should respond this morning if God is stirring in our souls and working in our hearts to incite and convict us of our lack of passion for him. He's stirring in our hearts and the Ninevites of all people show us, these, these the people that were the most wretched of all the wretched, they show us how we ought to respond to the word of God. I want you to look at verse 6 especially there to start off with. This is when the word gets to the camp. Look, look at what it says. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne he removed his robe he covered himself in sackcloth and he sat in ashes okay this is a king who is demeaning himself this is a king who is humiliating himself kings don't get off the throne for anybody they certainly don't get off the throne for any strange prophet who comes straggling in off the street as though he has something that he can do to confront the king of a great country like Assyria this king responds differently. Why does he respond differently? differently? Because the word reached him. Because the word reached him. That's so simple, isn't it? But that, that, that needs to be understood in at least two dimensions. That on one hand, we have to recognize that somebody from God's people had to go to Nineveh and tell the king. 
the word had to physically find the incarnate feet of a man to go and to look him in the eye and say, you must repent because you have done evil in the eyes of the Lord. The word reached him because it got to him, because he heard it. But then it reached him because it got into his heart. In fact, the king responds entirely differently than the way that Jonah responds. And Jonah, God tells Jonah in chapter 1, arise, go to Nineveh. And he arises and he goes to, he goes to Tarshish. And I pointed that word because look at verse 6. What did the word reach the king of Nineveh and what? He arose. Do you see the obedience? That in the heart of the king we find a soft-heartedness toward the word of God. That in the heart of the king we, hear, we see a responsiveness from him that was not found in the very prophet of God himself. In fact, what we see in the king is that the word of God comes and it works in him and then it comes out of him, right? It gets to him, reaches in, and works out. The same thing happens among all the Ninevites. Verse 5, the people of Nineveh believe God. There is an inward conviction. There is an inward faith that is awakened in them. They called. There is a verbal confession. They called for a fast, and then they put on sackcloth. There is an outward transformation. There is an outward mark of the repentance that is inwardly known. That, in other words, if we were to put this in the New Covenant context, what we might say is this is exactly what Paul is describing when he's describing the difference between worldly sorrow and godly grief. That this is the difference. Worldly sorrow is just guilt. Worldly sorrow is just, is, is, is just shame. Worldly sorrow is just feeling bad that I got caught. Feeling bad that other people don't think as highly of me as I wish they would think. Worldly sorrow is just, it's, it's concern about myself and about my standing and about the opinion and the reputation that I have. But godly grief, godly grief is different. Godly grief comes in and it breaks and devastates your heart that you're not right with God. That, that godly grief comes in and it, and it works its way out as this outward confession. I must confess to my brother. I must confess to my wife. I must confess to my sister what I've done. And then it's marked by this outward transformation. That now I'm committed, not so that people will think more highly of me, not so that my reputation can be restored, not because I, I want to be an impressive person or I, I want to be known as a spiritual person, but because I want to be right with God, because I want to reflect the glory of God, because I want to be known in the character of Christ. There is an outward transformation in my life. If we think about this in the context of a specific sin, let's, let's just choose one, pornography. What would this look like? Worldly sorrow is your wife coming in and finding you, or your husband discovering that you have a pornography addiction and you feeling a sense of shame and a sense of guilt and being sorry that you got caught with no real intention to change otherwise. Godly grief is the recognition that here I am in the house by myself, but there has to be boundaries, that, that it has gotten into my bones and I'm sorry and I'm broken over it and I'm, and I'm, I'm shamed before the Lord and I want to be right with God. And it has created dis distance and distraction from the glory of God in my life as so I confess it to the Lord. And then I go to my wife or I go to my brother or I go to my husband, I go to my sister and I confess it to them. I am confessing to you that I have sinned against the Lord and I have a problem and I need help with it. And so then it's an outward transformation that I am willing to accept boundaries and consequences now into my life, whether it's through software, through accountability partners, through somebody asking difficult questions, through the elimination, get, getting a different kind of phone or a different kind of internet package, is doing whatever it takes so that I can make sure that my life is transformed as a result. I want to ask you this morning, when was the last time the word of God reached you? When was the last time you were genuinely 
convicted over your sins? When was the last time that your heart was devastated, that you had sinned against God, so devastated that you would confess it to someone else, so devastated that you were willing to embrace boundaries in your life because you wanted a different life, you wanted a life that reflected the glory of Christ? When was the last time, not that you just heard it, but that it reached you into your spirit? And then I want to ask, when was the last time that the word of God reached through you? When was the last time that you, in the way it was through Jonah, the word of God reached through you? Because we see here that God keeps stirring and how we should respond to it. But we see that God keeps stirring and why we should go and be part of the ones that stir. Why we should be stirring from the start. Do you remember the realization that we looked at last week where, that Jonah has there in the belly of the fish? The realization that he has is that salvation is of the Lord. That it is not his right or his responsibility or certainly his place to decide that the Ninevites are or are not worthy to hear the message that God has for him. That it is certainly the case for himself that he should have been there at the bottom of the sea in a watery grave. But the Lord had delivered him through the fish because the Lord had done what he could not do. The Lord had saved him when Jonah could not save himself. So he recognizes that the salvation belongs to the Lord. Remarkably, remarkably... The king recognizes this in an instant. The first time he hears the message. It's a three days journey. The first day the king hears it, this is what he says. Who knows? Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Here's what he's saying. I don't know how God will respond to us. I know God does not owe us mercy. I know God does not owe us grace. I know that that God owes us what he has promised to us through the prophet. But who knows if we will throw ourselves upon his mercy. We will repent of our sins. We will turn to the Lord. Who knows? Maybe the Lord will see us. And the Lord being sovereign to save will receive us into his kingdom. And allow this great judgment to pass over us. That is, that what we see here is that God was more determined to save Nineveh than Nineveh was even to turn in repentance. That God, through Jonah, was always coming to Nineveh. God, through Jonah, always had a word for Nineveh, had, had a word for Nineveh. And he was so intention, intended to get to the wretched so that they could turn away from him that he made sure that the reluctant prophet went back. Here's the questions that have been searching my spirit all week long. What if God is more willing to save than we are willing to go? Because he is. He is. He is committed to save. Even more than that, let's get even more searching in the question that this week I have just been grieving over. What if Nineveh is more likely to repent than I am to go to Nineveh? What if the world that we live in is quicker to respond to the gospel than we are to share the gospel? Is this not what Jesus said was the case? Jesus said that the harvest was plentiful, but the laborers are few. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. That we keep thinking, if I go, the people are not going to love me. If I go, my neighbors are going to resent me. If I go, my children are going to run from God. If I go, then all I'm going to experience is pain and persecution and rejection. But here with the king of Nineveh, can we just say, who knows? Who knows? It is not ours to give and to take away salvation. It is ours to go and to sow the seed of the gospel. Because God is mighty to save. God is mighty to save. 
Could it be that like Jonah, we are letting our resentment for the world extinguish our passion to go and to spread the good news of the gospel? Let's use some examples. Are you committed to going and loving the LGBTQ community? Are you committed to resenting them? Are you committed to hating the pro-lifers? Are showing them that there is good news, that there is life for them and the womb? Are you committed to being afraid and fearful and dreading your Muslim neighbors? Or befriending them that they might hear the message of mercy that Nineveh heard? Y'all, I don't know if they'll answer. I don't know if they'll turn to the Lord. I don't know if they'll receive the good news of God with grace or with hostility. But who knows? That's not our responsibility. Salvation is of the Lord. He has sent us to go and to take the message of mercy as men of mercy. To incarnate the word of God in front of them. That they might be turned back to him. I am convinced, brothers and sisters, that God is still stirring in this generation just as he was in Nineveh's generation. I am concerned that I am convinced that God is stirring as much in Africa today and in the Middle East today and in Asia today and in North America today and in secular Europe today and in South America today as he has ever been across every generation. And the way that he stirs in the world is by stirring up his church and then deploying them to go to the edges of the earth with his, with his glory as salt and his light. Will we be Jonah or will we be Jesus? who dwelt among a generation that despised him and loathed him, that he might take the armor of those oppressors and carry it an extra mile. See, God keeps stirring because God keeps saving. This is not a hope-so idea. This is a promised reality. We don't have to hope that God is building his church. He is building it. We don't have to hope that God will turn the hearts of some toward the gospel. He is turning them. Do you know why people quiet quit? They lose their ambition. They lose their ambition. They, they, they begin to believe that there's a ceiling, that they can't go to the next level, that they can't have a higher level of pay, that they can't have a newer, newer opportunity, perhaps even with a pure motive. They begin to, to believe that the mission is impossible. They believe, they believe that the vision that they committed their lives to is now irrelevant and, and out of reach. And I wonder, I wonder here at Iron City Baptist Church specifically, I wonder among us if the kingdom ambition that we have to go and to plant churches to the ends of the earth, the kingdom ambition that we have to raise up funds and to send out five missionaries in the next 10 years to live abroad, I wonder if the kingdom ambition that we have to have a regional partnership in every major region of the United States and in every inhabited continent in the earth, I wonder if our kingdom ambition is waning because we've become convinced that it's out of reach. This morning, Jonah chapter 3 says, look at Nineveh. Look at Nineveh. Didn't Nineveh look unreachable? Didn't Nineveh look impossible? Look at Jonah. Didn't it seem like he was an unworthy vessel? Didn't it seem like it was an impossible messenger? Look at Jonah. Look at Nineveh. Oh, but more than that, look at God. God was determined, determined to get to Nineveh. Determined to use that flawed people that was Israel. Determined to use people like me and you. 
who quietly quit on him over time. Because God's mercy is still willing. Because God's mercy is still willing. That's what we see here, isn't it? God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil, and God relented. Your translation may even say that God repented here. We have to just stop for a second and ask, why is it, why is it that Nineveh was so soft-hearted to the Lord? God, the way he sends dreams to the Muslim countries today, had prepared their hearts for the missionary that was coming. God had prepared in his sovereign grace the way that the heart of Nineveh would be when Jonah got there. Here's what I mean by that. Historians, secular and spiritual alike, affirm that if you go back to the mid-8th century B.C., this is this around the 750s, 760s, that at that point Assyria was experiencing devastating invasions on the periphery of their empire that had them especially alarmed. Further than that, there was a major earthquake that came and rocked Assyria at that time. Then beyond that, in 763 B.C., on June the 15th, there was a complete solar eclipse that would have caused them just to be certain that this was the anger of the gods that was come against them. Now I want you to think, here's how God has prepared them. Assyria's heart has been softened by all of these natural phenomena that they would have acknowledged would have been the work of God in them from the beginning. And who comes scraggling up? This old Jonah guy. Jonah by this time walking with a limp in his gait. Jonah with a, with a weakened voice. Doc, Dr. Young helped me think about it this way. That here's Jonah, a man who would have been immersed in the acid of the, of the fish's stomach for three days. His skin now whitened. His hair removed from his skin. His leisures covering his body. In other words, he comes in there. To a people under judgment as a man who carries in his very own body the marks of judgment. And yet though he carries in his own body the marks of judgment, there he still stands as a reminder of the mercy of God. So in Jonah alone you see both both judgment and mercy, one and the same. And here's Jonah saying, the Lord is going, to turn, is going to destroy this place if you don't turn around. And they could look on every edge of the empire and they could see destruction closing in on them. And here is the king of the Lord saying, I, or king of Nineveh saying, I turn, turn from your evil ways. Let's fast, let's stop eating, let's stop drinking, let's, let's get off the throne and lay down in ashes. Oh, it reminds us of the cross, doesn't it? Reminds us of the cross. That they're hanging on the cross as a man who had been striped by the cat of nine tails. They're hanging on the cross. He's blood pouring out of his wrist, out of his head, out of his face where the beard had been ripped from him. Taken down with a body covered with the marks of judgment from God. But just like Jonah, just like Jonah, Jesus alludes to this in Matthew chapter 12 with the sign of Jonah. Just like Jonah, God, Jesus stood again on the third day, bearing the marks of the judgment, but standing by the powers of mercy. You see, God's mercy is even more determined than his wrath. God is always prefers grace to judgment, mercy to wrath. And so that's why we go. That's why we respond. That's why we sing. That's why we lay down our lives. But don't you think about this. Remember the promise that God made to Abraham all those years ago, Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 15. 
that through Abraham, through the seed of Abraham, he would be a blessing to all nations. And here is, here is one of his little seedlings, one of, one of the seeds of Abraham, Jonah, going to Nineveh, one of the nations of the world, perhaps the most wretched of all the nations, to preach and to proclaim to them, to bring to them good news. Why? God's mercy is willing and God's glory is spreading. Historically, historically, do you know when the, the, historically the Jews read the story of Jonah? On the Day of Atonement. Doesn't that seem odd? Doesn't that seem weird? Why? God uses the story of Jonah to remind his people that he isn't just here for the ones they can see today. He isn't just here for where the boundaries are today. God is coming to spread his glory from one end of the globe to the other, from south to north, from east to west, through his people. He is channeling his glory as men and women of mercy with a message of mercy that the nations might be saved. Now, God is determined to save. Are we willing to go? Let's pray to the Lord this morning. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.